0: plushcare.com slash in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
1: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hello and welcome to another
1: episode of History Hack. Alina, who do we have with us today? Today we have Emma Wells, who is a lecturer in ecclesiastical, I said the word ecclesiastical. (laughs) Taking me 10 minutes to learn it, and architectural history at York University. She specializes in late medieval and Reformation. English parish churches and there's a really long list of what else she specialises in but we'll be here all day. So her most recent book is titled Pilgrim Roots of the British Isles and she's in the process of writing another one so welcome. Thank you very much for having
2: me.
0: How are you? We've established that you are in the countryside um, but that you do have a McDonald's drive through a mile away.
2: Yeah the key the key point there. Uh, I'm doing very well thank you. It's very sunny here in the Dales. It's just lovely. I can walk you know, to feel, so I'm not, yeah, not doing too badly indeed. these. tomorrow you can have a McFlurry. And tomorrow I can have a McFlurry, which is the most important, you
0: know, highlight of my week. Yeah, first world problems. Uh, So, you're with us today, because we are going to make church history fun.
2: Yes. Yes, we are. That's the hope. Yeah.
1: I'm
0: excited, looking at this list of questions.
2: Oh,
0: hell yeah. Alina, go for it.
1: Yes, so we're all going to start. We're going to start with medieval relics. So can you define to us what, uh, what is a medieval relic? Well, traditionally
2: a relic is, you know, remains of saints, so remains of holy figures, but not just in Christianity, from, from Christianity all the way through to Buddhism. So in the broadest sense they can describe any sort of architect, uh, architect bleh, no, artifact with a uh, greatly religious or significant meaning and you know think holy texts prayers think bodily remains think clothing garments you know and en- anything and everything so they're there in order to kind of inspire belief so they were also kind of um, a bridge between heaven and earth for the medieval worshipper. So you would go to visit a relic and the, whoever saint that relic came from, whether it was his finger bow, whether it was, you know, old body would allow you to sort of connect to the divine and he would fulfill a sort of cure for you um, or a miracle, or, you know, you might've had a bad harvest, you might've had a bad stomach, you know, he'll get rid of all those things for you.
0: Where do you find them?
2: Where do you find them? All over. Essentially, you found them in churches, parish churches and cathedrals. So uh, they'd be in these little, um, or they might be in a really grand shrine or a tomb, you know, a big monument with this huge, with the person in it. And, you know, lots of people can come and worship and they can even kneel. They can kiss as close, um, they can kiss the shrine, they can get as close as they can to the actual remains, the relics. Um, But also they're in sort of, let's just, call it fancy containers i suppose display cases as well that could be paraded around the church paraded around the town so essentially churches really i mean you might you might have a few holy wells or you know in different places but essentially churches is there a market for these kind of relics absolutely it was a vast you know money-making enterprise so the way i like to think of it is think you know Tourist attractions today, think theme parks, think Alton Towers. The more sort of good relics you have, the more good rides you had, the more people were going to come to your church, the more people would therefore come see your saint and they would give you money in return. So, you know, in the promise that that saint would fulfill your cure, fulfill your miracle. So, it was a vast money making enterprise. I mean, if you think about the type of the amount of people that were coming there, we say like 100,000 visitors came to Canterbury Cathedral. The year after Thomas Beckett was killed in 1170. So, you know, that's, that's what was on. So, this is a vast amount of money, and essentially what our great cathedrals were, were built on. It was built on the money of these. So, as a result, people were trading in them, they were borrowing, beg, borrowing, stealing everything they could in order to get these relics. Because the better relic you had, as in like the better theme park, the more people were going to come to your church.
0: This is brilliant but it's obviously massively open for um, corruption
2: isn't it? Absolutely I mean yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of time there's a lot of money there's a lot of people behind this enterprise so you know think of it even today you know we have celebrity relics you know sort of badges of honour I'll come on to, we'll probably come on to that a bit later but
0: mm.
2: they, they were badges of honour for churches and you know they were trafficked around Europe as a result so we had this you end up with this sort of underground economy of trades um, and people sort of surreptitiously purchasing and even, you know, stealing relics because churchmen could essentially place orders. So you want the better ones. So you have to find them. You have to find the money for them. You might not have the money for them. So what happens is this group comes together. um, They were called relic, relic fixers or relic merchants. And the most famous we know of was a 9th century Roman deacon named Deus Donna, and he lived near the Basilica of St. Peter and Chains in Rome and you know with his little gang he would go around sort of sourcing relics and sourcing bodies you know for all the monasteries and the churches but unknown to many of his customers um, the brothers would typically acquire bones from the local catacombs because they lived right next door so they would then sell them on as holy relics. So they might have wanted, I don't know, St. Christopher or whatever, Fingerbones St. Christopher. And they've got, you know, Dave from down the road. Mm. (laughs) There was lots of corruption here. Um, You know, and then as a result, you get all this, you know, sort of surreptitious goings-on underneath. So as a result, you have all this sort of double dealing and people essentially having the same relic twice, three times, actually up to about 50 times. So... These you know these are holy antiques people wanted them. the more that they did was that they would just stand up everywhere. So for example, you might say okay how, how is a, how do you know you've got an authentic relic? Well you don't and so churches ended up with the same relic 20 as I say 20, 30 50 times we have pieces of the true cross all over Europe. Um, and in fact the 16th century Protestant theologian John Calvin he said that if you put them all together, the you know all the pieces would form a whole ship's cargo some of them were even claiming there was 29 places asserting to possess the nails on christ's cross and we know that he didn't have that many arms and legs so you know that's certainly wasn't true so you know as a result it was just free for all really it was what relics you get your hands on but you might end up with a bone from a human you might end up
1: with one from a duck (laughs) i love it so glastonbury you you did mention you mentioned about um uh uh, finding relics and things but glastonbury abbey the monks were really struggling for funds at the time what did they do and um was this more common than we think
2: well a lot of churches in the medieval era um not that they still do this of course um you know when they were struggling to find funds it's okay what do we do what do we do we need a money-making you know enterprise we need to fundraise essentially so at Glastonbury, they wanted to rebuild their church, and it was because there was a sort of cathedral crusade building in this area, everyone was doing up their churches, you know, that's why we have these great cathedrals. So, you know, you've got wherever it is down the road, for Glastonbury we have Westminster Abbey, who was, beat, you know, which was being completely revamped. They want to compete, they want to rival, they want more pilgrims, they want more money. So... They happened to stumble upon the skeletons of King Arthur and Guinevere in a tree trunk, as you do, and they relocated the grave into the grounds of the abbey's new church, the one they were building, and as a result obviously everyone came, all the pilgrims were coming to see King Arthur and Guinevere to offer, to give money, um, and therefore they, take, they took all the pilgrims away from, you know, Wells down the road, Wells Cathedral, um, the site had been you know, vastly popular for hundreds of years, and so this was a common practice. It was, you know, what can we essentially, you know, dole out? What can we essentially hype up to give us more money? I mean, you know, they would use the saints as a way, as I say, like theme parks, you know, come and see our ride, come and see our new attraction, give us more money. And therefore we can build a better church for, you You know, a more grand setting a more you know, grand heavenly house of God. So. Yeah, you know, that's why they did it. They just kept doing it and not you know, if they need a new transept, well, we might have a new saint that we just found down the you know, down the crypt or wherever it might be. <laughs> Dolly out
0: Oh, so how could you verify them, or did you just have to have faith that they were telling the truth?
2: Well, technically you were supposed to have faith in them. Um mm. Augustine of Hippo, so he was a fourth, fifth century um, you know, a theologian, etc., he he said, Look, he, you have to have blind faith, you know, in the modern sense of the word. But it was because, you know, in order to verify a relic, it was supposed to have performed miracles. So if, you know, you'd gone to your shrine and then you'd said, I need X cure to happen or whatever it might be. And that happened after you'd been visited and offered, then that's your miracle sorted and it's verified. But there were, you know, there were a few... Nugs with this method you know because miracles can be faked i mean you could say mm. oh my god i've got a limp oh my god i've broken my arm and then the next day oh my god i'm suddenly healed
0: i mean like uncle of- albert with the back healer in the market with del Boy in that a- episode of only fours and horses with the, mir- the miracle cure <laughs>
2: that's that's it that's it, it still <laughs> goes on today it really, it really does uh you know you have all the, the tears of blood and everything like that which still happens today on statues is it real is someone just putting tomato ketchup on them Who knows? but so there was another way that you could confirm the truth about miracles uh, sorry about relics but there was there was one way that you could or a t- few ways should I say that you could verify that relics were real that they were authentic you could plunge them into fire you could have trial by fire um because if you put them into a fire and they you know they flamed they they went up smoke they weren't real you know because relics course, <laughs> and you could also plunge a hot steak into them you can plunge them into hot water because of course nothing will happen to them and that's how that's how you authenticated a relic
0: that's kind of like the witchcraft thing though isn't it well we'll try and drown her if she does drown she was she was innocent
2: and then she's screwed anyway yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it is just just it's the same kind of principle it's fire water all the elements it's you know essentially the house of god protection
1: that's just, it's just crazy it's crazy but um i actually have a question from my dad uh who wanted to get himself involved on this podcast because he got excited Cool. Uh, he wants to know: Is there any evidence of the Knights Templars, um, sell so like up relics and things, at any of the churches?
2: Yeah, I mean, in terms of, well, it's an interesting one. I mean, lots of, like, I don't know how much your dad knows about, you know, Templar architecture, but um, there's a lot of evidence of the Knights Templars actually building the church, building churches, and therefore, you know, there was relics within them. So. You know the most famous one is the Knights Templar. What's called the Knights Templar Church, um, at, uh, in Dover uh, above Dover, it sits. There's it's only sort of really stone foundations now, but it's a small chapel, and th- that was their chapel. And um, essentially, it, Dover was the chief port. You know, going out. So any pilgrims who wanted to go out to the Holy Land would would go from Dover. Um, so it was an obvious place for them to hold. You know, property. Uh, where they would put all their money. I mean, you know, Templars essentially started the the banking system that we know today. Um, But some people say it's a wayside shrine. Some people say it's Chapel of the Holy uh, of the Templars. But it's what's really interesting about it. It's got a circular nave. It's not, you know, the normal rectangular building. And this is very typical of their churches um, because they mirror the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. So, you know you build the churches in the image of the holy sepulcher so that you could essentially take um a sort of spiritual pilgrimage it was you know this is the closest you're going to get to jerusalem without actually taking a dangerous pilgrim pilgrimage there so here we go let's design a church let's fill it with relics let's fill it with everything else and our money and everything and this is where we worship and same with temple church in london so obviously that's why temple in london is called temple because mm-hmm. that's the temples inhabited there um and you know temple church is where they were ordained into the order and everything like that so that's the greatest one but you know that's as much as we know but i mean another one as well is roslyn chapel up in scotland you know there's a lot of really interesting architecture and the da
0: vinci code one isn't it
2: oh yeah yes unfortunately (gasps) a lot of that is crap that's just yeah but it is a nice church it's a lovely church and yeah, it's, it's fantastic and if you want to go in and feel like you're you know um, what's his name name no, no, no. uh robert uh, langdon brander that's it yeah if you want to feel like you're him go into you know the church there and rosin chapel and try and decode all that yeah good luck
0: <laughs> so um i i love this stuff um because some of the nonsense that these churches come out with is just fantastic so tell us what is your favorite relic
2: oh god um well i am sort of renowned for giving this example but it's because it's a bloody garden it's so hard and, so <laughs> and people are like it, it, really but um it's the holy foreskin of course um and yes that's because that's exactly
0: good. the bit of him you'd take
1: That's not as bad as, as, what was it, Napoleon's penis the other week.
2: Why is it always with
0: the penises? It must be men that come up with these things because women are not (laughs) fixated on them like this. I know they like to think we are, but we're just not fixated (laughs) on it. So who was it that was purporting to have the holy foreskin? I'm
2: just thinking this is the medieval example of a dick. dick, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It isn't, it isn't, it isn't. Um, Well, Jesus... What it it pertains to is Jesus' circumcision is said to have taken place about eight days after his birth. Um, So what happened to his foreskin? Of course, everyone wants to know the answer. So it's, you know, it became a holy relic, obviously, because it was a part of Christ's body. And, um, you know, there was, I should say, there were, you know, first-class relics, which were actually the bodily, you know, the bodily remains, the body itself. Then you had second-class relics, which were essentially garments, objects artifacts related to the saints or martyrs or christ whatever it is and then third class relics were anywhere they touched or been in the vicinity so the foreskin was obviously a first class relic and so after it had gone after he'd been circumcised many churches or several claimed to have it in their possession Um, its first mention came when charlemagne presented it as a gift to pope leo the third just what
0: you want for christmas
2: i mean why not no one else has got yeah this is true so but um then again as we always see there are rival foreskins all over across europe (laughs) sorry i
1: just never thought i'd ever hear that line in my life (laughs) rival foreskins
2: You you know one is better than the other i don't know um all told, there were at least 31 churches asserting to house the holy foreskin in the Middle Ages, uh, most notorious. Uh, what kind
0: of things did they claim it did, these 31 churches?
2: Uh, well, no, didn't really do anything. It's just, it was, it was just important to have, really. And one of the saints, and her name has escaped me, I can't remember which saint it was. Um, she even possessed that she had it around her finger um, as a wedding ring. And then it was also claimed to be, um, the rings around, um, Uranus. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh (laughs) dear.
0: What's the creepiest one you've ever come across? That is quite creepy to be fair. Um,
2: it it depends what we say by, mean by creepy, I suppose. I mean, uh, St. Anthony's tongue is a little bit odd. Um, Mm. So St. Anthony of Padua he died um, in 1231 and was then exhumed about 30 years later and he hadn't decomposed. Um, no, sorry, his body had decomposed, but his tongue hadn't decomposed. Just his tongue was left, don't ask. Um, so obviously it's supposed to have been, you know, a miraculous sign um, that he, um, of his speaking and teaching of the word of God, essentially, that's why essentially only the tongue is there. But... Um, he was then exhumed again, I think it was in the 80s, and it was still there. You know, all the, you know, vocal cords, material, all the vocal apparatus was still there. So that's a little bit weird.
1: Ready to pop the question?
0: The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkled down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
1: there's
2: there's got to be one where it proves that it's completely genuine is there you mean into, in what way are we saying genuine though
0: so like is it can they really like claim as their provenance that it's part of the true cross or that it is the bones of a particular saint
2: well there are some that are actually we have the entire bodily i mean how do we prove it yeah that's still difficult because someone could have just swapped you know as i say you know john down the road for whoever it might be but there are for example uh saint francis of a his entire body is still on display in goa um you know and he died in the 16th century and you know he's one of the first jesuit missionaries um and in fact every 10 years his entire body it's in a sort of glass cabinet is put on public display and thousands of people line up to kiss his body and you know there's a big procession and they even have like tight security you know so as if it's like i don't know bts or something um you know just don't get too close
1: to yeah 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 i'm creeped out by that that's actually really gross
2: you see a photo of it it's not the it's not the nicest thing to look at i'm not sure i would want to get too close to you know the 500 year old body but more 400 year old body but mm, yeah
0: i'm loving this tell us about some more of your favorites
2: we have margaret of clitheroe there's her withered hand um and you can go and see that in york um so she was um essentially against church um in in the 16th century so there are a lot of they're all kind of weird bodily parts if you see what i mean so Mm. a lot of heads on display a lot of teeth um how do we know that they are real that's an interesting one there's no sign of authenticity there's no it doesn't come with the you know certificate of authenticity so it's an interesting one and you you know i think i kind of get immune to them because i've seen so many it's just like there's a head here there's an arm here you know so to me it's not that good um when do when do people wake up
0: to this and when i'm guessing it's going to be uh, thomas cromwell is the instigator but when does this relic culture begin to collapse and why
2: well sort of i mean technically technically it's still happening today mm. um so do we say it ever really You know, did it every fall, but yeah, beginning it's an interesting one because it starts, it's part of the Reformation. Let's just say, you know, it starts back with this, as I was talking about before, you know, relic stealing, um, you know, all the fake relics, all this happening. It was part of the kind of corruption of the Catholic Church, so. It was a movement, it was part of the movement which sparked the Reformation, and obviously in the UK, sorry, in England, um, continued into the 1530s when Henry VIII broke with Rome. Um, And we saw the attack on pilgrimage, relics, reliquaries, shrines, the veneration of images, all that happened. So it was essentially stopped in the late 1530s. But, uh, you know, what's interesting is, you know, you go from toddling off on pilgrimage or down to your local shrine for you know all your life suddenly you're told that that you can't do that anymore and that you don't have faith in that it's an interesting one so did it ever really stop and in fact you know shrines did continue a lot of them were dismantled like a lot of saint shrines were dismantled obviously at the reformation um but still things continued on and then they they came back and they went and they came back and they went some were turned into more secular artifacts some were even turned into secular objects so you might have relics hidden within like chalices that you would say the mass with um and you know you have these fancy really fancy chalice cups you know all gilded and you would take them all apart and then they would become the reliquary caskets so they're kind of like you know hidden you know objects really and put into really weird places that you know people could never see and it's like oh there's a tiny little bone in that cup Oh yeah, so that's essentially what it was. But it, it, you know, when you get into the Victorian era, when you get to the nineteenth, early nineteenth century, once the Enlightenment had passed, um, it, so there was a trade again in unsanctioned relics. You see this all start to happen again. But in fact, the Catholic Church continued um, the requirement for all altars to house relics until the nineteen sixty nine. So I mean, this was the other reason why there was so prolific proliferate was because you know you had to have a relic on your altar to sort of I suppose authenticate your um, high altar as well but as I say still going until 1969 so there you go and it's still going on today people like weird and wacky wonderful things
1: yeah I was gonna say have we not um have we not kind of renamed or rebranded that to memorabilia
2: yeah I mean it is really um People still today, I suppose they go on pilgrimage. Don't they? they go on long journeys to see objects and artifacts. Still do today. It's it's it has moved on and it has become a sort of modern concept. I mean, God, there are interesting ones such as um, 2006, a little pebble about the size of a raisin sold at auction for twenty five thousand dollars. And you might think, Ooh, what's you know, something. Maybe this was Christ's, you know, kidney or something. No, it was William Shatner's kidney stone. So someone actually bought (laughs) William Shatner's kidney stone. I think it was a casino or something. They had like a celebrity, you know, I don't know, museum or something. Um, Yeah, they did because they had um, a cheese sandwich that was graced with an image of the Virgin Mary, Along, you know, as part of their collection. So, you know, (laughs) whatever place you boat
0: <laughs> just like you do yeah
2: i mean you, you, i wouldn't pay much for virgin mary on a, on a cheese toastie, but you know someone else might
0: um apart from relics and churches you find so many other things for example etchings carvings paintings etc there are a few there that are out of the box so let's just quickly talk about some of them um why don't we start with because alina wants me to start with uh, the <laughs> north nave isle of york minster
2: Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, the north Nevale of York Minster houses the pilgrimage window. Um, And that's, so that's dated to around 1330, 1335. Um, And it's named after, um, there's a depiction of the crucifixion in its main lights, in its main panels. And then uh, this is cited above male or female pilgrims, which flank St. Peter and St. Peter is obviously the patron St. of York Minster. So that's why it's called that. But around the borders or what we call the margins, it, if you look at the window, it looks a bit like an illuminated manuscript page. You'll see, as I say, round the sides, round the borders, are these borders uh, are these margins of amazing little images which you wouldn't notice were there. You wouldn't even perhaps see them if unless you were looking straight at it. And within them is a load of amusing imagery. So there is um, a funeral procession of monkeys. Um, there's squirrels. Um, there's also a monkey holding up. There's quite a few monkeys holding up flasks, sort of little round um, glass bottles, sort of things. Um, and you think, what's he doing? Well, that's that is urine. Um, there's also a fox preaching to a cock. A parody of a hunt chasing and hunt of a stag chasing a hound. A fox stealing a goose pursued by a woman. And then an archer and some other things. So it's, everything's kind of back to front as well. Um, and it's because uh, the, the kind of morality tells, the kind of allegorical images to say, you know, warnings, this is how you should act. Um, but monkeys particularly are really interesting because they're actually used throughout medieval imagery. Um, they're often represented doing human-like activities, you know, playing instruments, playing games, hunting, eating, drinking, and they're there to suggest the folly of man um, because, you know, in Christ- Christian tradition, they were apes, were seen as thoughtless, compulsive, imitators of human action. So, you know, gluttony, you know, vanity, foolishness that's what we think of. You think of, you know, aping behavior. Um, and that's where that comes from. So they're also there to ape doctors of physics. It, it was kind of felt that. We didn't really have the, you know, the medical um, profession as we do today. And it was felt that um, only Christ could cure the souls of man. But you've got a lot of these doctors of physics, as they were called, who were, you know, supposed to cure you of different things. So, you know, it's kind of taking the piss, essentially, out of out of man and the idiotic things that we do and warn you not to keep on doing them, essentially.
1: I mean it doesn't get any better really with uh, the parish church of all saints in eastern on the hill does it? (laughs) No. Um, As you wander past the church you know
2: lovely church you look up um, there's a man uh, well carving of a man sticking his backside out on top of you you know towards you. Now the legend is that he's sticking his bum towards Peterborough Cathedral um, because supposedly, you know, he's the stonemason, he wasn't paid by the stonemason at Peterborough Cathedral, but but actually mooning men um, can be found all over churches, Um, like not everywhere, but you know they are quite common. Um, This sort of dates about the 14th century, now these are grotesques usually, they might be gargoyles, so the difference is gargoyles essentially have a water spout so some of them do have a water spout so you can get rained on out of the man's um,
1: area. <laughs> um, Go on, Emma, say it. Penis. Um, Go on. Well,
2: no, he's, he's um anus, in fact. Oh! His penis too. Yes, there are penises too. Um, and so, you know, because he's got his bum out, you see, and then the, <laughs> the spout comes between the cheeks. So, um, but the general purpose of him, um, we don't r- entirely know, but there's... One of the things is people would people did moon at each other in the Middle Ages, just you know why not? Um, but it was kind of you hear this in Shakespeare and and Chaucer and things where they, you know, kissing her behind, you know, essentially that's what we say, like you know, someone's kissed your ass, kind of thing. Um, but there's also the belief that they are um, sort of protective um, apotropaic symbols that is what we call them, um, that they're there to warn off devils or warn off sin. Um, so, you know, pr- protective kind of carvings for anyone coming into the church, any evil spirits getting into the church, and they, therefore you're cocking a snook the devil.
0: Um, the Church of Saint Mary and Saint David at Kilpeck in Herefordshire. Is this now an
2: this interesting a, one? Oh, yes, it's probably one of the most famous churches, um, particularly for its one of its well-known images, which is of um, one of England's best preserves preserved sheila na which is a bit of a tongue twister. Um, now these are usually figurative stone carvings, some, sometimes in woods, um, of a naked woman with her legs open uh, exposing her genitalia. Um, so the, the name likely comes from the Irish, which means sheila of the breast, because of course she's she's naked as well um so you find these particularly above doorways and windows not just on churches you can see them on castles yeah maybe a couple of townhouses occasionally but may, mainly more of the larger buildings um and again we see them about 11th to 17th century but obviously they look very erotic in nature and you're thinking why is this lady flashing me but uh, again we think they're sort of they might be a potupe, they might be protective, but particularly they're likely symbols of fertility. So warnings against lust. Um, so I think also it's a bit of fun as well. So, you know, it's they were removed, they were destroyed, they were covered over. So clearly not everyone was OK with them, you know, all the time. But really the carvers having fun, but also... You know the warnings. We still do these things today. I mean, there are grotesques and gargoyles of like alien from Predator, there's um god, what was this, uh, Star Wars characters and things. So, we're still doing it today.
0: There's also the really weird mm-hmm. hidden sexual things in Disney as well, isn't there? Oh god, yeah. Where Is they there? have a laugh and hide things. Just yeah.
2: Google the little
0: mermaid dirty <laughs> stuff, Alina. Oh my god, Not, now, so do that. Not now, though. Not now, because we've got one more church.
1: So the last church we've got to ask you about is the Church of Saint Thomas and Saint Edmund in Salisbury. So above the chancel arch is a
2: you know, very powerful mural, um, a wall painting that you can see immediately upon entry. It's actually just been restored so it looks even better. Um, dated to 1475 it's one of the largest doom paintings. Now these were really quite common in parish churches in the medieval era. They're, they're essentially last judgment paintings, they're essentially This is what's going to happen to you if you don't wise up and come to church and do as you're told. And you know, there's a big mouth of hell and all the you know all the souls being you know fried on a uh, pitchfork and you know all that kind of stuff. Good stuff. Um, And the reason being is that obviously when you when you went into the church, the nave, you know, the main part where the congregation sits, that was your part. You couldn't go any further. You couldn't go up to the chancel with the high altar. So it's just at that line where you can't go into to say you know do as you're told but what's really interesting about the Salisbury one is um, in the bottom right hand corner I believe it is there's a dishonest alewife um, and she's got a jug in her hand um, she's hugging a demon and the reason was is that um, she's doomed to hell obviously for eternity she's in hell but it was believed that ale wives a multitude of sins. I suppose they still do really, but encouraging idleness and overindulgence, tempting with provocative clothing and overt displays of wealth, greed and excess, not to mention corruption. So, you know, they're talking about they overcharge customers, they watered down ale. So it's kind of an you know, metaphor Having been
0: a bar manager, I will not confirm or deny any of those allegations. Someone who
2: works in the club as well, I can... Yeah. <laughs> oh, <true. laughs>
0: I'm just saying, never put money behind a bar, that's all I'm saying, people. Oh, yeah. If I can impart one bit of knowledge to the rest of humanity, never put money behind a bar.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, because this is essentially where the kind of, tempt, you know, seductive, you know, temptress comes from as well. Yeah. So, you know, those looking for a interesting party, you know, come along for to the bucks and wench. You know, think of the German bucks and wench as well. This is kind of where it all, you know, stems from. It's it's showing that, you know, anything that you do during, you know, lifetime, well, everything counts on the Day of Judgment, but, you know, watch out for your sins and there is no redemption. You know, watch out! You know, don't do don't do all this bad stuff, or you'll be. It's fine. one of those
0: outer circles in hell reserved for us, then Emma and all other bartenders. <laughs> <laughs> Emma, thank you so much for coming on and, and brightening up church history for us. Um, it's been great. I love it. Just mad body parts and naughty carvings. That's
1: essentially, what it's all about. Yeah,
0: <laughs> brilliant. Thanks so much.
2: Thanks ever so much for having me. Join us tomorrow
0: when we will take you on a Caribbean jaunt. We are going to be talking to Nick Ramos, who hosts a Cuban revolutionary podcast about the island's history from before Columbus through to about 1895. Uh, There's a reason for that specific date, uh, but join us for that because we had great fun with him. He's a really good storyteller and we learned so much. Uh, You can now nominate History Hack for an award. If you go to BritishPodcastAwards.com, you can nominate us for a Listener's Choice Award. Uh, You have to do your vote by the 6th of July 2020, uh, and they will announce the winner at the British Podcast Awards on Saturday, the 11th of July 2020. Uh, So if you wouldn't mind, we'd really appreciate it. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement.
2: I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both.
1: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.